morning. If you would turn for our scripture reading to the book of Acts, chapter 9. We're going to certainly miss Mark and Anne, and we'll have opportunity over this month to tell them so. And perhaps you might want to write them a note or email and tell them how much you have been blessed by their ministry. Now we're in a series of messages from the book of Acts in the New, the New Testament. And our series has been focusing on some key questions throughout the narrative. This morning's question is, who are you, Lord? Listen for the question as I read. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, He saw nothing, so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. For the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this narrative, this testimony of Paul's, We pray we would delight in it. We would wonder at it. In a world that has forgotten about miracles and the supernatural, we pray that that, uh, we would truly be astonished and marvel at your goodness and your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no camera flash was needed. A few weeks ago, three siblings in their 20s, they were out bicycling and they stopped to take a sad selfie in the rain. And what happened was, as they took their picture, they caught the very moment they were hit by lightning. The picture on their phone records the flash, the white lights. Their faces were washed out by the intensity of the strike. Fortunately, after being hospitalized, they survived their encounter. What's the closest you have ever been to lightning? Pretty close for some of us. Too close, perhaps. We saw some lightning Tuesday at the baseball games, and we ended up, the second uh, number of teams ended up calling their games. Our soccer camps had great weather, but one morning there was a thunderstorm. And even this morning, the skies are threatening, aren't they? You'll be interested to know this, that in all of Canada, southern Ontario records the highest number of lightning strikes. (laughs) In our text, the very moment is captured when a light flashes around Paul that's brighter than the sun. Three times in the book of Acts, we find this narrative given about his encounter here with our Lord. Look at verse 1. But Saul, that is Paul, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, when we last saw Paul in the book of Acts, he was instrumental in the murder of Stephen. He, Saul was a Hellenist Jew. That meant he was not from Israel proper. Remember, he's from Tarsus, a Greek-speaking area in Asia Minor. And so he is a Hellenist Jew and probably attended what was called the Friedman Synagogue, where most Hellenist Jews attended in Israel and Jerusalem. 
And he was sort of like an outsider because of where he was from. And perhaps that made him more zealous for the law, sort of to prove himself and his bona fides that he is legitimately a Jew and a, and a Pharisee. He says in Philippians, he says, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the, of the church, as to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. I was a Jew of Jews. And Acts chapter 3 says Saul was uh, ravaging the church and entering houses. He dragged out men and women, committed them to prison. He was breathing out murder. And the Christians scattered outside of Jerusalem, up all the way up to Damascus, into another country. But that's not going to stop Saul and his zealousness because there is a fire in him that's not going out and this breathing threats and breathing murder is is like blowing out menace he's blowing out slaughter literally sort of like a dragon breathing out fire he he is full of of rage and it's a madness of religious fervor He would say to the Galatians, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. He says, how I persecuted the church of God violently. Some of the texts say, beyond all measure. I tried to destroy it, he says. He hates the Jews who were converting to Christianity. He hates them with every fiber of his being. Everything he thought... And and valued about Judaism, the customs and the traditions and the practices and its worship, his very idea and, and identity as a Jew, he felt was threatened and undermined. Christianity to him was like a cancerous growth that needed to be cut out, and however and whatever it took to do so. He says to King Agrippa later in the book of Acts, he says, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did, he says. And I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, he says, I cast my vote against them. I I wanted to see them punished, he says, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. He's willing to go into a foreign country to chase down the Jewish Christians who, like fugitives, had had left Jerusalem. He wanted to extradite them to stand trial before the Sanhedrin. And so that's what he does. Verse 2 tells us he asked him for letters to the synagogues. That's the high priest. He asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
That's a six-day journey to another country to drag back Christians in bonds. Harmless Jewish Christians. Harmless men and women. They had escaped his fury in Jerusalem. For the first time, you'll notice here that Christians are called belonging to the way. (laughs) The way. They were followers of the way. That was how Christians self-identified themselves, as followers of the way. That is the way of salvation, the way of life, the way of the Jewish Messiah, Messiah, Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's saying, I follow Jesus, the Christ. And Paul, or Saul, is in a way sort of like a bounty hunter crossing borders to bring back those he hates and see them even murdered if they don't recant their faith. And so he gets his letters and off he heads out. In verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So he's getting close in his journey to his end goal, Damascus, the capital of what was historically Syria, Damascus. And we read there that suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Something like lightning strikes. The flash of light, we're told, is from heaven itself. It's from heaven. It's all around him. He he would say to King Agrippa, it was brighter than the sun. And he would say, and and we're told that it is literally the presence of the resurrected Christ. Verse 17 says there, look there, where Ananias says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. Jesus appears to him. He says to the Corinthians, Paul says, you know, he'll go through the fact that the risen Christ appeared to, the, to Cephas and to the twelve. And then he says, last of all, he appeared to me also. And he'll write in 1 Corinthians 9, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And his answer is yes, I've seen Jesus. This light, the presence of Christ. He saw Christ. Our minds would travel back to the transfiguration. That mountain, when the glory of Jesus was revealed to Peter, James, and John. And and Jesus was as in dazzling white. His face shone as the sun. And we're told here that he falls to the ground, verse 4, and falling to the ground. And he not only sees Christ, but he hears Christ. You see, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ counts the persecution 
of his church, the same as persecuting himself. Just this week, some awful killings took place in Nigeria. Two days ago, a a pastor and his seven-year-old son were beheaded coming back from a choir practice. They were killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's as though they persecuted Christ himself. This is what Christ says. And verse 5, he said, that is Paul, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? The use here of Lord is curious. It, it could be translated, who are you, sir? Or it could be translated in the sense of deity. Probably not that far on either end. He's, he doesn't really know who he is, but he knows that he's more than just a sir. Who are you, Lord? And the answer is given by the Lord himself. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. And we're supposed to understand this is not just some subjective experience of Paul. Look what Jesus says, verse 6. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. You see, it's an objective experience. They hear, and something incredible has happened, but they don't see Jesus themselves. And Saul rose from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was blind. And they lead him into the city, into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, we cannot be sure when did Paul actually convert to Jesus? Was it at the flash of lightning in the presence of the resurrected Christ? Was it at that revelation? He thought Jesus was dead, and now Jesus he sees is alive. Was it when he heard Christ saying, I am Jesus? Was it sometime during this verse 9, this three days he was without sight? Three days of darkness as he fasted? without food or drink? We can't be sure. But there is a flavor here of three days in the tomb and then resurrection. Three days in the earth, dark and dim, and then light and life. Three days in grief and shame then joy and forgiveness. I mean, the change that comes to Saul is portrayed almost as a death and resurrection itself. And the resurrection of Christ becomes absolutely central to the preaching of Paul. 
it made all the difference that Jesus was actually alive. It became central to his, his proclamations and, and his ministry. He, he would say, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He said, why, why is this so incredible? He will say, Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. I like to think of Paul sitting in his darkness, blind, astonished, mulling over the scriptures in the Old Testament, which he knew well, and rethinking everything. And I like to think as he spent those three days in prayer, humility begins to trace its way into his soul like a, like a lightning bolt that sends out its fingers right into his very heart. And he would be thinking of his rage and his murders and his anger and he would be thinking about Stephen. He would be thinking about the letters that were burning a hole in his pocket. These letters that gave him authority to arrest Christian men and women. A great many hours. Three days to think. And we're told he was praying. And he'll be granted a vision in his blindness. And so let's just leave Paul for a moment here in his tomb. He's, he, he's praying. He's blind. The lightning of God is doing its work in him. And then we're taken to another scene here, right in Damascus in verse 10. Now there was a disciple, that is, he's a brother, he's one of us, He's a believer in Jesus Christ. There's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. It's quite different than what Paul said when, when the Lord said to Paul, or Saul, Saul, says, who are you, Lord? Here, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. By the way, this street still exists today. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. He's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now look at Ananias' reluctance here, which we could identify with, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done in, to the saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the priest to bind all, call on your name. Are you sure about this, Lord? You want to bring me into this man's presence? Don't you know he's going to arrest me? He's going to drag me to Jerusalem. I'm going to be murdered. Hmm. 
But, verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is so much about God's sovereignty and his providence. He's saying, look, I've chosen this man. And, and it's my name that he's going to carry with him where, where he goes in ministry. And oh, yes, Ananias, you'd like him to suffer, and he will suffer. But that's between me and Saul, God is saying. And, and he's going to suffer for my name. It's all God. God's in control. God is directing. God's taking initiative. God's sending forth his lightning bolts into the heart of men and women. It's God's name. It's his purposes that he is advancing in history and even in our own lives, in your own life. Verse 17, Ananias obeys. It says he departed, entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, look at what he says, brother Saul. So at this point, Ananias is recognizing Saul as a fellow convert to Jesus Christ, a fellow disciple. He says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He recognizes him as a brother in the Lord, in the family of God. And immediately we read in verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. The light of the Messiah forced Paul to recognize his own spiritual blindness and to receive his sight. This is somewhere around the moment of his salvation, most likely. Last week, I asked you to think on the moment when your own life was changed forever. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he rises, it says, and <clears throat> immediately, then he rose and was baptized, verse 18. That is that physical expression of what's happened spiritually. He's baptized. The drama of salvation is, is played out in the baptism as he goes under the water and he dies in Christ. He comes out resurrected in Christ and his sins washed away. He's part of the church. You see, Paul's not going to go on and establish a new Christianity. He's being integrated into the church now that is growing and prospering and developing under the hand of God. A new life and a new birth. Lightning almost got me once. I was 16 and I was picking up my mom at a hospital where she worked as a nurse. And it was 11.30 at night, her shift was over. And I was waiting for her to come to the car in the parking lot. It was an awful storm. I mean, the car was shaking and the wind was blowing and rain was pelting down. And all of a sudden, crack. 
The lightning was so close. I thought, I thought it was day all of a sudden. And, and, and you, you know it's close when you can feel it tingling almost in your skin. I mean, you could almost smell the ozone. I mean, the bolt had struck very, very close. And all converts to Christ, in a way, have experienced the lightning strike of God. His self-revelation that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God himself. Look at in verse 20. He was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. He's the Son of, the, of God. He's alive. He's, he's Lord and Savior. He, his light is shed abroad in our hearts when we were converted. And humility was brought into us and faith in him. You know, it could be that God brought you here this very morning that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and who rose again. That all who trust him for the forgiveness of their sins will also rise one day. I mean, could it be that you were brought here to be struck by his light and to have your darkness pierced. Sometimes you never know where the lightning will go. Our former church in Arnstein was hit by lightning around midday one day. It hit the top of our bell tower, our steeple, and it went like a buzzsaw through the wood and the siding. It ricocheted off our church bell, continued on, and hit the bell in front of the fire hall down the street. And from there, it went over a hill into the attic of a house. <laughs> you never know where it's going. And in this way, Paul's conversion is so encouraging. It's so filled with hope because you never know. It would seem impossible, not just impossible, but absurd to ever think that Saul would become a Christian. I mean, it, it just would seem absolutely impossible to the Christians who are running from him, going and leaving everything behind, their homes and their property and their relationships, running away from him. It would seem impossible as he murders his way through the body of Christ. To think he would ever become a Christian, no way. It's not a chance. There was no one more unlikely. There's no one more against Christianity than him. But you never know where the lightning will go. 
I find that hopeful. Many of us who have loved ones who are far from Christ, who are so opposed or so indifferent that the mere thought of them converting to Christ seems impossible to us. But still we hope and still we pray. Don't stop praying. When the storm of life is at its darkest and the clouds are at their heaviest, when all is gloom and dim and there seems to be no hope for the one that you love, that is when the lightning of God goes forth most often into the heart of those that he will save, those he has called, to those who will hear his voice and see his truth. Lightning, you see, still strikes. You know, Jonas are still being coughed up on some beach somewhere to obey the Lord. Jacob's are still wrestling with God all night and asking him, what is your name? Manassas. Manassas, so full of sin, causing others also to sin, who in their own distress ask the favor of the Lord and and they humble themselves and pray and know that the Lord is God and the Lord receives them. Prodigals, who've gone so far off into sin are still coming to their senses and heading home. There are those who yet will praise God for his amazing grace who were once blind, but now they see. You never know. Jesus says of his spirit, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, pray. Love your loved ones and pray for them. Pray some more. I like to imagine that my prayers are putting a lightning rod over my loved ones. Strike here, Lord. Strike here. It seems impossible, but you never know. Would you bow with me? Father God, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. In your light, we see light. Oh, Father, for our loved ones, send forth your light into their heart. Lift their darkness and the veil of their blindness and let the scales fall away. Oh, grant them your grace. Draw them forth. Appoint them to eternal life. Send forth your lightning 
of the revelation of Jesus Christ into their very heart. Enlighten the eyes of their heart. You who send forth your lightning into all creation. Ah, you command and it strikes its mark. Your lightnings light up the world. The earth sees them and trembles. Send your lightning, your light into the heart of our sons and our daughters. Into the heart of our siblings, our grandchildren, our uncles and aunts, our parents. Father, when things seem most impossible and desperate and dark and dim, when the tomb seems to have closed and the darkness seems to have won, in the storm of their life that almost breaks our spirits who are praying for them, send forth your spirit and your word and your witnesses. Send forth your light. In your light, let them see light. Roll back the stone. Make them alive in Christ Jesus. Send forth your light and truth and lead them to your Holy One. May they say one day that your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon them. And so hear our prayer. And may we continue to pray without fail. In Jesus' name, amen.